Someone asked me once, is God in favor of logic? And as a general answer, I would say, no, he's not in favor of logic. Because the logic of man, the philosophies of this world, Colossians says, are abhorrent to him. Someone asked me, you think I should be a philosophy major? If you are, do it very carefully. Because God's not pleased with the philosophies of this world. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of Romans chapter 5, we've been looking at the love of God, which is evident through not only the hope God pours out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, but also through the sacrifice Jesus made on our behalf on a cross. As we pick up, Pastor Brogy explains how that act by God is an act of love towards us. I remember Phil Donahue years ago on national TV mocking Christians saying, Oh yeah, for God so loved the world, He gave His only Son. How is that an expression of love? If God really loved us, why wouldn't He have died? Now think about this. Jehovah's Witness, Mormons, Christian Science, Liberal Protestants deny the deity of our Lord and Savior. And so in what sense is the cross a demonstration of God's love? The only way it can be a demonstration of the Father's love in that is if the Father and the Son are inseparable as the Bible teaches. We do not worship three gods. We worship one God who's revealed himself in three co-equal persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so the Bible teaches that the love of God is a demonstration. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a show. God commends his love. He proves his love towards us. And that when God gave of, him, of his Son, he gave of himself. Because the Father and the Son are so inseparable. As Jesus said, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When God gave His Son, He gave Himself. And so again, three times it is underscoring that Christ died for us and it is a demonstration of the Father's love. Now secondly, I want you to see that He died not only for people who are unworthy, who are sinners, but he died for people who are in need. Look at verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, we've already explored this word sinners in Romans 3.23. We saw that there are three usages of it in the New Testament. Here it's used as an adjective. And it's describing the person doing the wrong. In verse 8, we're called sinners. It's used as a noun where it speaks of the byproduct of what we've done, what we call sin. It's used as a verb, past, present, future tense, that speaks of the action of what we've done, namely sinning. But the point is, whether you're referring to the finished product, the person, or the action, the word in every context means the same thing, that you've missed the mark of God's holiness. Now remember, the Greek of the New Testament was not an upper-level Greek, it was Koine Greek, common Greek. That's what God chose to put his word in. And when the Bible says that we have sinned, it was a very picturesque word in the New Testament. It was used of someone who had missed the path that they were supposed to walk on. It was used of someone aiming at a target who had missed the mark. 
It has those usages outside of the Bible. And God takes this very picturesque word to describe us next to the glory of God as seen in Christ as having missed the bullseye, as having missed the mark. Now, I know people sometimes deny sin as sin. People today now are saying homosexuality is not sin. That's not something you do. That's something you are. And they're making it a minority status. I, if I was a minority, I'd be up in arms. It's not some minority status. Our president, our vice president, so many of our congressmen and senators, they're wrong. It is an evil. It is evil. God is describing here, you can deny sin, you can rationalize sin. The communists... There's some one billion Chinese on the planet, and they are led by the Communist Party. Communists are still very much alive. And while there's an estimated 100 million believers in China, there's hundreds of millions of communists who say there is no God. And so on their dictionary, they say sin is an archaic word denoting the transgression of a mythical divine law. It doesn't matter how you define sin. It doesn't matter if you rationalize sin. It doesn't matter what you think about sin because what you think about is not unimportant to God. What he thinks about it is what is important. Your opinion means nothing to God Almighty. And God is saying the glory of God pictured in Jesus Christ that next to him the ground is level. And that's why the thieves and the prostitutes and the publicans were more receptive to the ministry of Christ because they knew they had a problem. You know, I meet people sometimes and they say, oh, pastor, he really needs to be saved. As if he is more lost than someone else. That's not good, clear, biblical thinking. Dead is dead in the Bible. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. I don't care if a man's been dead for two minutes or 20 years. Dead is dead. And sin is sin. It doesn't matter if you're the prostitute who's at the bottom of the Grand Canyon or the moral religious man who's on the top of Mount Everest. No one can touch the stars. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And that's why he said in that parable to those religious Jews, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes will get in before you because they knew that it's not those who are well that need a physician, but those that are sick. Now look at verse 8. He's dying for people in need, but God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. You can almost bank on it in almost every instance in the New Testament. Wherever sin and death are mentioned, it's underscoring the concept of substitution. The sins were ours. The death was his. Christ died for sins. And if Christ had no sin, then it means he was substituting himself for our sin. He was taking the penalty our sin deserves. It was pictured in the Old Testament, foreshadowed, prophesied, but fulfilled on the cross of Calvary. And so in our passage, he's describing the properties of God's love. That we're helpless, that we're ungodly. 
He is describing the proof of God's love, that we are unworthy, that we're in need of being saved. But finally, I want you to think about the provisions of God's love. Think about this future deliverance. God has provided future deliverance. This is one of the most wonderful verse in all the Bible. I don't want you to leave here not understanding it. Look at verse 9. Much more than underscore those in your thinking. I have it underlined in my Bible. These are critical words to understanding Paul's argument. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved. Underline those words. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. By the way, if you look in verse 10, you see the same repetition. For if while we're enemies, we're reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, there it is again, much more, having been reconciled, underline it again, we shall be saved. Someone asked me once, is God in favor of logic? And as a general answer, I would say, no, he's not in favor of logic. Because the logic of man, the philosophies of this world, Colossians says, are abhorrent to him. Someone asked me, you think I should be a philosophy major? If you are, do it very carefully. Because God's not pleased with the philosophies of this world. Now, if God's called you as an apologist to argue against them, fine. But God finds them repulsive. But God is not an illogical God. And God is not against all logic, because what we find in this text is divine logic. In fact, in the first century, you will find a lot of literature that has remained to this day outside of the Bible, and one means of reasoning is what they called an a fortiori argument, an a fortiori argument. An a fortiori is Latin for from the greater to the least. It's an argument from the stronger to the lesser. In other words, if this great thing can be true, then this lesser thing can be true. And so Paul uses that form of logic here in our text. In plain English, it just means if one thing can be true, then the implication is the other thing must be true. For example, if someone someone in their 20s is too old to sing in the youth choir, then it means by implication that someone in their 30s and 40s is all that much more too old. Or uh, if Bob is deceased, it would infer that Bob no longer pays taxes. Well, that's not always true, but, <laughs> but, but if one thing can be true, then the other thing must be true. So step through this logic. I don't want you to miss it. Look at verse 9. Much more than, indicating that what is about to follow is even more astounding than what he has just said. Much more than having been justified or saved or declared righteous, how? By his blood, not by our works, but by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Now, if you will notice in verses 9 and 10, as I emphasized, twice over, he uses a future tense to describe our salvation. We shall be saved. Now, you're thinking, I'm confused, Paul. I thought you just said we were saved in verse 1 that we have been justified, past tense, by faith in Jesus Christ. Don't you have your theology mixed up? And Paul would look with a smile on his face and a sparkle in his eye, and he would say, it's not me that is confused. It is you that are confused. And so he closes this paragraph by telling us of some future dimension of salvation. He's already looked at it historically, but in a moment, he's going to look at it prophetically. 
If some brash evangelist comes to you and says, are you saved? You should say no and yes, but not in that order. You should say yes and no. Yes in the sense that I've been saved from the penalty of sin if you've been born again. And no in the sense that my salvation is not over. We're going to say that there are three dimensions to salvation that are going to be underscored in chapters 6 through 8. I am saved from the penalty of sin. We call that justification. I am being saved from the power of sin. We call that sanctification. I will be saved from the presence of sin. We call that glorification. So yes, in the sense that I have been saved from the wrath of God. No, in that I do not have my resurrected, sinless body made to walk on streets of gold. And so follow the argument. How do I know once saved, always saved? There are many uninformed Christians who say, well, am I really secure in my relationship with Christ? Is it possible for me somehow to do something and to sever this divine relationship with the Lord? What if I did something that would make God stop loving me? Is that possible? And Paul in verses 9 and 10, in one of the most clearest explanations, one of the most profound arguments in all the New Testament, argues for our eternal security. Notice, much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. That is, if I can be justified or saved, not by my efforts, because they fail, they miss the mark, but rather by the spilt blood of Jesus Christ, then I can know that I will be saved from that coming wrath that Jesus will deal out when he is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. How can you be so sure, Paul? Verse 10, for if while we're enemies, we're reconciled to God through the death of his son. If while we're ungodly, helpless sinners whom God describes as his enemies, and he reconciled us. And I told you there's some words every Christian must have in their vocabulary. Words like justification, sanctification, glorification, propitiation, redemption, reconciliation. The word reconciled just means you're right with God. You're a friend of God. Again, this is a our fortiori argument. If, if, if while we're enemies, rebels against God, he could make us his friend much more. Having been reconciled, having been made his friend, we shall be saved by his life. You follow the logic? If we are now right with God, if God could do the harder thing, then God can do the easier thing. If he could pick you up when you're an ungodly rebel and an enemy, now that he has made you his friend by the shed blood of Christ, he can keep you. The thrust of the argument, if God can save his enemies, certainly he can keep his friends. And not only does God stamp this truth with the death of Christ, he also stamps it with the life of Christ. Notice, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved. How? By his life. Our security is true not only because of Christ's death, but also because of Christ's life. Put out in the margin Hebrews 7, 24 and 25. Hebrews 7, 24 and 25. It says, Jesus forever is able to save those who draw near to God through him. Since, here's the reason why, since he always lives to make intercession for them. We're saved by the Lamb of God who died, but we are kept by Christ the high priest who prays. 
What does the devil, according to the Revelation, habitually do at the throne of God? He accuses the brethren. But the Bible says if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have an advocate who lives on our behalf. And so the person who believes that somehow they can lose their salvation only understands one side of redemption. The death of Christ redeems us. The life of Christ preserves us. We're saved by his death. We're kept by his life. That's the thrust of the argument. And so when you think of the provisions of God's love, there's future deliverance. But notice too, God has provided present enjoyment. Look again now at verse 11. And not only this, we also exalt, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Now again, don't forget the thrust of these verses. The Apostle Paul is speaking about rejoicing or exalting in God. He's mentioned it three times in verse 2 and verse 3, and now in verse 11. We are to rejoice in God. We don't simply rejoice in the gifts that God gives us. We rejoice in the person who gives those gifts. We sing that great hymn, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. And that's true. But you don't have to wait to heaven to get to rejoice. God wants us to rejoice now. And one of the major marks that you're a growing, maturing, spirit-filled Christian is you've learned to rejoice even in your tribulation. Most of us have used this portion of Scripture, especially Romans 5.8, evangelistically. And that's a legitimate application. But don't miss the context. He's not writing to lost people, but to save people. To save people whom we will see in the 8th chapter are under intense persecution. And he's saying, listen, the love of God is unfailing. It's unstoppable. It is securing. And you know it not only experientially through the Spirit who lives in you, but you know it objectively, historically, through the cross of His Son. And so there ought to be some rejoicing in the believer's life. Yes, there's a dark side. Yes, there's a, a sober side that we speak of. But not to the point where it smothers the joy that God wants us to know. Listen, you go home, you meditate on these truths, and you will find yourself on your face in worship before God. Now, how can we apply it? Let me suggest three questions this morning. Number one, how can we ever doubt God's love? How can we ever doubt God's love? Now, understanding the truth that are discussed here in these 11 verses, how can we ever doubt the love of God? Now, certainly there are times when people are perplexed by the tragedies and calamities that we witness. I've already dealt with some people like that this week. Through intense pain, what's going on? But thank God these were mature Christians who in the midst of it, they did not doubt God's love. You don't need to doubt the love of God. He is trustworthy. Just remember your regenerated work in your heart and the work of the cross. Secondly, I would ask, how can we not apply God's love? How can we not apply God's love? Think for a moment about the institution of marriage, how Paul applies God's love to marriage. He says, it's a command, husbands, Love your wives, how? 
just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. This verse really is a measure of a man's love for his wife. The husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? Sacrificially. The Bible again teaches we're in hostility towards God. We're enemies of God. I have all four adjectives underlined in my Bible. We're helpless. We're ungodly. We're sinners. We're enemies. We're at war. We're at odds. For such people, Christ died. God demonstrated, he proved a quality of love that now he wants us as husbands to express towards our wives. You see, people, again, often, when they are engaged, they, they, they love the one they love because all they can see is the positive. You know, and couples come in for marriage counseling, they're engaged, they say, yeah, have you ever fight? Oh, we don't fight, Pastor. We've never had a fight. It's coming. <laughs> they don't see any of the faults. But then when the faults start coming, oh, I didn't know she was like this. We, so to speak, when we're engaged, you worship the ground she walked on. But now that you see she's got some faults, that's another deal. But God doesn't worship us. He doesn't worship the ground we walk on. We are to worship Him. All this self-centered Christianity that's running through our state and across our nation is enough to make me nauseous. We are to worship the living God while we're helpless, while we're enemies. God sought us, and you ought to find yourself on your face before God. See, God knows that a distorted view of the cross will result in a distorted view of the way you love your wife. This is not a suggestion. It's a command. Husbands, agapao, willfully love your wives. How? Just like God loved us in Christ. It's an unconditional love. What are you going to say to God one day when he says, well, how do you love your wife? Well, God, I loved her in certain areas. But man, she was tough to love. She was stubborn. She was self-centered. She was lazy. She was rebellious. I, I just couldn't love her all the time. This is not a suggestion. God is saying, love your wife the way God loved you when you were unlovable. God knows your wife's weaknesses. He created her. He knows her faults. Christ died for all of them. Now, I could have picked on the wives this morning, but I went after the leaders in the home. But I could say equally, from Titus 2, older women are to teach the younger women to love their husbands, their phileo. And it speaks of a respectful kind of love. Love, her, love them no matter what. Or we could broaden it to every situation as the Lord did. He said, if you love those who love you, what credit is that? Even the Gentiles, even the pagans do that. But I tell you, he said to love even your enemies. Third and finally, I would ask, how can we not apply God's love? How can we, not, how can we resist God's love? How can we resist the love of God? Now, maybe I'm speaking this morning to someone who is a genuine born-again believer. Someone has wronged you. Someone has mistreated you. 
A Christian has disappointed you. And so you've walked away from the church. Or maybe you've believed the lies of the evil one that somehow the ways of the world are more attractive than the ways of God. But you see, when you doubt God's ways, you doubt God's love. Now, for some here today, you don't need a spiritual recharge in the love of God. You need a spiritual birth. You don't need a boost from below. You need a birth from above. You need to be born again. You say, Pastor, you don't know how bad I am. God does. For such people, Christ died. Now, if you want to go to hell, you can And you will remember this sermon that God put before you this morning. A pastor who pleaded with you, who explained to you the love of God in Christ. And if you want to go to hell, you can. But I can tell you, while you will go to hell unsaved, you will not go to hell unloved. There'll be a tear in the eye of God when he says, depart from me. You who practice iniquity. Our Father, what amazing, amazing love you have for us. And I thank you that on the authority of your word and on this book, that anyone who will call upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. Father, I'm sure there are people here who do not have an assurance That if this were their last day upon the earth, that heaven would be their home. They'd like it to be, but they don't know. Because in the back of their mind, they're not sure they're good enough. And you've already declared they're not good enough. They are ungodly. That they can never be good enough. And so the need for the cross. Thank you for your promise that whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, speaking of Jesus, will be saved. Would you do that today? Would you... Take God at his word that the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ can save you. Would you say, Lord Jesus, save me. Remember, God cannot lie. He'll keep all of his promises. But if you don't believe what God says, you're saying he can't do it or he won't do it. And that's the opposite of faith. In simple, childlike faith, ask him, Lord Jesus, save me. Father, I thank you that while I was helpless, dead in my sin, so much unlike you, ungodly, a rebel at heart, a sinner who missed the mark, an enemy, that Christ died for me. May we, like the Apostle Paul, carry the love of Christ in our heart. May the Spirit so fill us that we are habitually reminded, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. In this day of casual Christianity, in this day of pure nonsense that is being preached, help us, O God, to renew our minds and to put them deep into the Word of God, that this grace might teach us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live holy and righteously in this present age. We ask it for the glory of Jesus Christ. And in his holy name we pray. Amen. 
To listen again to today's study entitled Secure in God's Love, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit our website at searchthescriptures.org and look up program ROM23. Of course, you can always order a CD or DVD by calling us at 877-787-7478 and again requesting program ROM23. Tomorrow we'll begin a look at God's death sentence. Join us then as we search the scriptures. 